You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jem Kassang and I, Niels Kassel-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed. Like my conversation with Mark last week, where we discussed the topic of how to detect changes in trends and whether you should use economic data in addition to just looking at price in your investment strategy. Also, I would really encourage you to listen to the midweek episode, which admittedly will not be for everyone as it is somewhat politically charged, but the topic is nevertheless incredibly important as it deals with the dangers to democracy that the Financial Times chief economics commentator Martin Wolf lays out in his new book, The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism, which he explains why, in his view, the marriage between democracy and capitalism is breaking down. Lastly, I am excited to let you know that in our CTA miniseries, where Alan and I have been privileged to speak with some of the decision makers of the most successful CTAs in the world, we have another episode planned, which will come out within the next couple of weeks. And in the meantime, if you haven't listened to the previous episodes, I certainly encourage you to go and check out that series. So anyway, head over and check it all out after you're done listening to Jem and me today. Jem, it is always great to be back with you. Um, how are things? How, what's going on in the Windy City today? It's raining. It's a little spring May, May showers, right? Uh, uh, hopefully... Uh, you know, we, we get some flowers here. I'm not sure that the market will get uh, flowers here in May, but uh, that's a whole other conversation. I think that's a little teaser. Well, over here, um, actually where I am today, the sun is shining and we have a whole weekend of the Eurovision Song Contest lined up for us, which is one of those things where the more extreme you are as an artist, the better the chance is of winning, or at least that's how it seems. Um, so um, I'm not sure which one is best, uh, Jim. But anyway, we do have a good lineup of topics um, and we will dive into all of those. But maybe just to um, just to kick it off, kind of your headline big views that you're focusing on. Uh, and then we'll dive into all the details, um, plus some other important topics. Yeah, kind of how I tease it. Uh, this is an interesting crossroads in the market. Uh, we have gone through the well, relatively well te telegraphed, in my view, uh, springtime uh, kind of a market, especially given some of the dynamics that we had been witnessing the last uh, kind of four or five months. Um, there's a lag to monetary policy that is uh, continuing to work through uh, the economy. And as we get to this debt ceiling, I think we're also you know, debate. I think uh, we're we're getting to an interesting kind of moment here as we head into uh, a more illiquid summer. Uh, generally speaking, uh, the months before quarterly opex, uh, whether it's February or May or August uh, mid month, tend to be very interesting structurally and have more um, risks. So uh, that's something that we're looking at as we head into opex here, uh, into an illiquid summer after a particularly kind of uh, steady, uh, you know, complacent rally. 
So perhaps the old saying, sell in May and go away, might turn out to be um, a good um, myth uh, this year. Now, I completely forgot that I did want to actually just mention that there are a few interesting things I, I think uh, worth paying attention to this week. Uh, of course, many believe that, um, you know, with the Fed action we saw last week, that the Fed will be on pause. But I did notice that today, uh, Friday, Fed Governor Michelle Bauman expressed concerns about high inflation and a tight labor market, suggesting a need for continued interest rate hikes. In fact, she was speaking at a symposium at the ECB in Frankfurt today, uh, and she said that she's seeking signs of, and I quote, consistent evidence that inflation is on a downward path when considering future rate increases um, and at what point we will have achieved a sufficiently restrictive stance uh, for the policy rate, which, of course, is an interesting comment, uh, given the fact that interest rates are at a 16-year high, and you would probably argue that it is at a restrictive level uh, even at that point. But it does suggest that there might be a little bit of disagreement in the rate-setting committee, and it does raise the question about future or potential pauses at the um, future meetings um, I also saw that the initial claims ticked up to a fresh high of 264,000 yesterday um, and that the four-week moving average uh, also hit a high uh, or recent high of 445, uh, sorry, 245,000. Anything you want to add to that before I dive into my little trend-following update before we go into the global yeah, macro topics? I, I mean, we've talked about this a bit, but I think it's important to continue to set the stage that we are not in a typical cyclical kind of are we is the is the economy slowing or is it speeding up uh and and, and what does that mean for the the fed action there is uh structural secular inflationary headwinds uh that are likely to remain sticky even in the face of cyclical um you know pressures um so i really think that we're no longer really playing in two dimensions with the federal reserve which we've really done primarily for the last 40 years um, there is a increasing probability, and we've been talking about this for years, of stagflation. And that is a very difficult situation for the Fed, particularly at the beginning of a stagflationary, you know, secularly stagflationary environment. So I really think there will be continued debate. And, uh, and again, I think we'll dive into that a bit more later. But, but the, the, you know, the crux of it is we have a, uh, a situation where the Fed may not be able to, to fix the cyclical downturn this time around. I can't remember what movie it's coming from, but I think there's like a movie where the, the quote line is something like, it's complicated. And I actually think it is pretty <laughs> complicated at the moment, I have to I have to say. Anyway, what's not complicated is um, that in the last few weeks, uh, and probably most of this year really, from a trend-following perspective, it's been kind of a non-trending environment lately. Uh, and, but we did see some recovery in the last week after a soft start uh, to the month of May. So, um, you know, there's been a little bit of improvement. Um, but frankly, uh, it's been driven by just uh, a few markets, really. It's not very broad based, pretty much like the stock markets where a handful of stocks is responsible for the gains this year. Uh, and interestingly enough, I noticed, Jim, that my own trend barometer, which tracks the trendiness of, of a broad-based diversified portfolio, uh, is actually at the exact same level, namely 41, as it was last time we spoke on the Systematic Investor Series, which means it's completely neutral, no conviction up or down. So anyways, um, quick run through as we normally do. The B-Top 50 index is down 88 basis points for the month, down 3% for the year. 
SockGen CTA index down 72 basis points for May, down about 4% for the year. The trend index down about 45 basis points, down about 5% for the year. And the short-term traders index actually struggling a bit, down 1.15% for the month, down 3.3% for the year. And given its much lower volatility, uh, it is relatively underperforming, I would say. Anyways, stocks are down as well this month, down 74 basis points for the MSCI World and 93 basis points for the S&P index. Uh, but they're still up seven and a half and eight percent uh, for the year so far. And bonds are just marginally up so far in May. All right, Jim, as we already alluded to, um, you're talking about an interesting inflection point that we're at right now. I've heard you talk about that it reminds you of a recent topping process because let's not um, um, be too um, cagey about it. You do think that markets will head lower later on. But talk, talk to me a little bit about what, what you're seeing in more detail and, and maybe some of the underlying reasons why you take the view of the coming market actions as you do. Yeah, so there's, as I mentioned, to set the stage, a, a lag, as we all know, to the um, monetary policy interest rates specifically. Uh, and that's working through uh, the economy. It usually has about the 12 to 18 month lag. Um, you know, we're getting to a point uh, where about, you know, call it 13, 14, 15, you know, we're getting into that, that later ends of that inning, we're beginning to see those effects. All right. Um, and we can walk through all of them, but whether it's in uh, housing and, and buybacks for stocks, um, you know, uh, private equity, venture capital, uh, re-rating, all of these things are starting to begin to work through. And, and those have significant, uh, you know, effects to collateral in the market and broad liquidity for asset support. Um, at the same time, and I think this is important, the QT and, and the drag on liquidity that that the Fed has supposed to have been doing, which has a much more dy you know uh, direct effect to markets in terms of liquidity, um, has really be, been counteracted uh, by uh, you know several things, uh, not just the the deposit insurance that we you know have, have recently given to banks, but also the the Treasury General account. Um, kind of stimulus that's been coming as a as a function of sending money in you know to uh, during these emergency measures right uh, for the debt ceiling debate and so if you look at a chart of liquidity really uh, you know in that regard it really hasn't come down much given the amount of you know the the ninety billion dollars of draw that we're supposed to be seeing in terms of quantitative tightening um, our estimation is that as we move forward here, we'll, we'll begin to see a lot of unwinding of not only the deposit insurance effects, right, but also importantly, the refilling of the Treasury General account once we get past this, um, you know, this this debt ceiling. Uh, so ironically, everybody's worried about get... the debt ceiling, right? I think the the great irony of all this is, is the resolution of the debt ceiling is ultimately what uh, will be a sell the, uh, the event, um, we think. Um, so as we move towards that, those pressures are all increasing in terms of removal of liquidity, all while we're moving um, along a path of, uh, you know, uh, generally uh, worse uh, margins, um, you know, and other, you know, margin compression and other issues that are hitting equities broadly. At the same time, positioning is actually quite short. 
Um, so people know all of this, right? I'm not telling anybody here things that, that aren't kind of publicly understood or known. The question is why hasn't the market, you know, the market is forward looking. Why hasn't the market taken this to heart yet? And the answer is positioning. And this is what the answer always is, by the way. Um, the, if everybody uh, expects something, it doesn't happen uh, exactly as one might expect. And that's because of the reflexive effects of dealer positioning. We talk about this all the time, not just in the options markets, but broadly, um, if there's a lot of short interest in the market uh, or there's a lot of put buying, um, you know, these things ultimately lead to reflexive support for the market. It's that proverbial wall of worry that people talk about. And so we've really had this macro versus, um, you know, positioning uh, push and pull. And the way that usually ends is one of two ways. It ends uh, either uh, with time. And why does time matter? Because uh, risk increases with time. People are willing to take more risk if things don't happen for some time. And they're willing to, whether it's sell vol or other forms of risk premia, they're willing to come in and, uh, you know, and sell uh, kind of risk um, over time. Uh, that's greed at work. It's also the diminishing of fear. People who are buying protection or, or you know, risk averse eventually give up on that. And because it's, it's expensive, by the way, you know, market structure works, not just the vol, but, but broadly. And that, uh, that generally leads to the unwinding eventually. Think, uh, you know, think about all of the, uh, the selling of vol that in 2017, that eventually led to the 2018 volpocalypse as an example, but there's a million examples of this um, along the way, um, generally that starts to get unpinned before a decline. Uh, we saw that in 07, we saw it in 99, 2000. Uh, we've seen it uh, even uh, in other uh, such circumstances. And, and, and that's part of why things always take longer, not always, but generally take longer than we think, right? Because of those reflexive effects. But they do eventually come, right? People were talking about the housing crisis and in 05, 06, uh, it took till, oh, uh, you know, 08 to really unwind, but it was macro realities eventually do come home to, to roost. Um, it's just a matter of shaking, you know, uh, things building uh, to a point uh, often beyond what, what you think is possible. So time is always one possibility. The other is, um, is price. So you can shake uh, short positioning simply by a big enough rally a, a, a stretching of, of markets. You can squeeze shorts, force people, uh, institutions back in from underperformance, um, as well as naturally take vol higher um, into a rally because markets slide naturally to a lower implied volatility just at baseline. And eventually that becomes low enough where participants are willing to come in and buy it and then remove that liquidity right uh, from dealers um, and, and vol naturally becomes more unpinned. This is a natural process. This is why we often get also blow off tops, right? And, uh, and increasing ball into those final rallies that we see. So these are kind of two ways that this story kind of ends and that we shake positioning, right? And that's really what needs to happen at this point. All of this structural liquidity factors, the macro elements are in place, um, but uh, you know you have to shake the conviction of shorts and uh, and long vol and uh, and the short vol um, you know has to build in the market. So this is generally the process. Um, we saw this uh, you know as recently as the the recent November into February 2022. Um, all the things were in place. People were positioned for a decline. There was a lot of talk about the Fed increasing interest rates. Everybody knew it was coming. Um, uh, they started and then it took 
several months. And it also happened to line up with a seasonally kind of positive period, right? That's not a coincidence. Uh, end of year, beginning of year, and all those flows. And that pushed us into kind of a, 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 a very kind of big blow-off top. Not a very big, but a big blow-off top that, that, uh, that ultimately then unwound um, you know, last year. And so we believe, again, uh, after a seasonally positive period here, for a lot of the reasons we've talked about in the lags, we've talked about that, that everybody knows what's coming here now, we're in this topping type process, and it really is a function of, of uh, time and distance you know, for, for what comes next. So. Actually, can I something? I'm, I'm, there are actually two questions that comes from from your 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 thoughts there. Uh, one is one thing that I've actually always, as a trend follower, uh, been wondering because what we notice in our models is that um, we we make a lot more money on our long sided trades than our short sided trades, um, and some of it can be explained by say bonds having gone up in price for so many years up until uh, a couple of years ago and so on and so forth. Um, but I've always myself had a little philosophy uh, and you will probably know this much better than I do that uh, tops takes a lot longer to form compared to a bottom. You you often see like a one day like March 23rd, 2020. Now it was artif artificially induced by the Fed, sure. Um, but but that's kind of just what I've been noticing. How, how do you how do you think about uh, that? Because you mentioned time, and I completely agree. Time is important, but but how do you see or do, have you ever thought about whether the timing of tops or the the duration of forming a top versus a bottom is structurally different? Unquestionably, and for one simple reason, um, the world is long, right? Uh, if you if you eat, sleep, breathe, you're long, right? Uh, you own a home, you work a job, you own as any asset uh, whatsoever, you're long. And so panic is akin to death, right? Uh, they, are, uh, they are fearful, uh, scary things uh, for everybody. Uh, and so that simple positioning, again, it's all about positioning, right? Necessitates some type of panic and, and expediates panic into uh, a decline and makes them more volatile. Um, and ultimately it is that panic in that stress selling that is beyond kind of some rational level that ultimately will turn um, a market quickly into a decline. And ultimately we all still, again, need, we'd still breathe, we produce, we, you know, create earnings, et cetera. And so there is a natural bias up in markets. Now, that bias, to be clear, is long-term. And you can stretch, uh, again, we've talked about the 68 to 82 period ad nauseum, but the, the reality is um, you can go decades without that up upside trend if you, if you bring that forward uh, in, in other ways, which we did before that period and we've done now uh, for now 40 years. Um, but there is a natural um, upside bias for lots of reasons. That's why there's skew in markets as well, which also structurally has a reflexive uh, effect here too, right? That's all still positioning. And the, at the end of the day, they, the gamma is to the, you know, to the downside, uh, you know, broadly in markets, not just structurally, whether or not people, you know, but also for dealers because insurance gets bought and that also uh, exacerbates faster, you know, the, the elevator down escalator up reality. And it's not, again, it's, it's structural to markets and how, they work. It is not a coincidence that that's the way it works. 
because of that, though, um, you know, it, it's also hard. Uh, it's, it takes time, as I mentioned, to, for markets uh, to go down at first because um, there is a steady stream. I mean, a great example here just structurally is, you know, one of the many things that kind of feeds into this is as market vol declines, right, it's easier to hedge. And structurally, this is kind of some inside baseball. What happens when that, that happens is put skew actually historically increases because people will still pay some price for insurance to the downside. When you have a structure where the fall comes down and skew is high, the market has, it's easier to buy insurance, but there's also this buyback of Delta that happens because skew is higher in the market every day. And so it's a naturally stickier, better. And the more put buying that happens in that scenario, the more that supports uh, markets in the short term. So there's a structural kind of buying and, and, and stabilization that happens during these periods. Um, and again, reflexively, the more worry there is, the more of that there is um, in markets. It won't stop it from happening, right? The macro realities eventually do play out. Um, and often it, this creates bigger kind of problems uh, that eventually are bigger uh, crises uh, because they take longer and they build in the system. But but structurally, uh, yes, it is uh, by definition a vol event or a, a structural decline can't happen if uh, if people are expecting it and preparing for it. So, so that actually brings me to another thing that uh, you mentioned, and I, I, I'm, I'm sure that some people listening to us today will probably sit there wondering uh, when you say, well, it kind of reminds you of that uh, period, uh, November 21 leading into February 22, where, and you talk about both periods where investors are short, right? So I'm thinking, okay, well, last time uh, we, we were, rates were at zero, and everybody was expecting, rightly so, um, that Fed was going to put up rates not necessarily by 500 basis points in a year, but certainly. So you could you you could kind of logically say, yeah, okay, I'm going to take some risk off. I'm going to protect myself, go short, whatever. Now we're talking about the complete opposite. We're talking about the Fed pausing, right? So why do you think people are short today as well? In that sense, how how does that? I think people might. Want to hear your insights on that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my likening those two is more in terms of structurally how the market is positioning and and broadly how markets top, right? I can have given many examples throughout history of that. That's the most recent and, and vivid in people's minds. Um, the macro realities um, are actually not as much a, a function, uh, in my view, of, again, given the lag uh, in... in uh, in, in interest rates is not a, as much a function of the Fed raising rates. It's a function of that we're heading along the same secular path that we're on, and we're just further down that path. And the realities are becoming more and more evident, you know, based on how sticky inflation was. Right, we were in camp transitory still, right uh, at that point. Uh, there's there's a lot of uh, information that we now have that we've been talking about it since back then, but the, a lot of these things have been affirmed um, at least to this point. So. So my, my view is, is, is again, the, the secular realities of the more stagflationary environment that we're in, the geopolitically, um, you know, the, the geopolitical tensions haven't gone away. If anything, they've continued to ratchet up. Um, the uh, resource scarcity we've been talking about, you know, OPEC and, and, and kind of the, 
the battle, uh, you know, across borders in that regard, you know, the economic warfare, all of that um, has continued. Um, meanwhile, uh, you know, we've raised interest rates zero to five, and guess what? Unemployment is at a new record, right? We, you know, and, and these things, so that the realities of the situation are, if anything, more more dangerous at this point. Um, so yeah, I think uh, again, it's it's more the secular realities, and we're bumping along, kind of this this top, this trend that's coming that we're seeing, and uh, and I think that's becoming more and more evident. Yeah, no, and 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 you know, in many many ways, uh, Jim, I if I take off my systematic hat, I kind of see it the same way as you do. I'm kind of thinking. Yeah, there should be some downside, maybe even a lot of downside in equity markets. I hear a lot of people that I have huge respect for with that view. Uh, the only thing that concerns me is I hear more and more people expecting that. And that reminds me of of the uh, rally after the global financial crisis in 2009. And people were saying, well, it's just a bear market rally. <laughs> Clearly, we're going to go down to new lows and all of that. And the market just kept going and going and going. And I think it really was one of the most hated, you know, bull markets we've seen because too few people um, participated in that bull market, I think, with as much um, exposure as they uh, would have liked. Be that as it may, because I've also actually heard people, um, that well, one of them were on the podcast, and he, Simon Hunt, I mean, although he did expect the markets to go down first, which hasn't really happened, he was saying, well, and I've heard that from other people, you could, as you say, you could have that blow-off top, but actually lasting a lot longer uh, than a few months, maybe even into 24, 25. I mean, Drockenmiller, and I'll come to him later, but he sees this and has for a long time sees 2025 to 2035 as a really troubling period. Um, but I'm going to leave Dragon Middle for a second because I'm going to ask you another question. We talk, you talk about stagflation. Again, I don't disagree necessarily with that view. And we do see unemployment, at least uh, from the official numbers, at, at record lows. And this is a little bit of a curveball, um, but since you're from Chicago, I'm sure you can handle that. And that is, you know, AI has, even since you were last on this particular series, uh, like five, six, seven weeks ago, so much has happened in the AI space, meaning it has become so much so much more accessible to all of us. And I'm thinking it's going to have an impact, and people already talk about all the things it can do. But what's interesting about AI, it's different from the technology revolution where a lot of quote-unquote blue-collar workers uh, were suddenly obsolete because we could have machines do the work. With AI, it's kind of the well-educated people uh, that becomes potentially obsolete because it can do things that, and maybe do things better than you and I can do, you know, write a blog post or whatever it might be, a memo. And so, and again, I don't want to, you know, scare people too much on, on, on a weekend, but but I'm thinking you and I have these big picture talks about where we think things are moving in 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 a much bigger time frame. and i'm I'm curious about what you think that the real risk is if suddenly AI does create, you could say, an unusual 
pick up in unemployment, not from the usual places where you would see it coming, but actually from the middle class, the well-educated, how, from a societal point of view, do you think that can impact all of the things we're talking about here? Yeah, so great question. And I get this question, mind you, a lot. This is the new question everybody's asking is like AI, as if AI just came out of nowhere, right? Like, we, uh, I want to be clear, uh, you were around in 1999. Uh, did you hear anything similar about the internet in 1999? It was going to change the world. And guess what? It did, right? But just because that was true did not mean that the realities of financial markets didn't play out, right? Yes, unequivocally, technological advancement is deflationary, right? There's no question about that, right? We have been advancing for 100,000 years, right? This is not new. And everybody, again, when you're sitting on the, the trajectory looking up, everybody always thinks we're going to keep going at this pace. The problem is that the reason that AI is happening here right now and that we're at this moment of exuberance and uh, the, we, the world is going to change tomorrow is because we took rates to zero over the course of 40 years and essentially invested in technology and advancement and globalization and at the same time that advancement, right? So everybody has been uh, growth at all, at all costs, right? And um, the reality is that's, this is what happens at the end of those cycles. Um, but now if you're pulling that money away, and this takes time, right? It took 40 years, right? It's not going to happen overnight. You are now taking the means of investment into more future technological advancement away, right? And that happens, again, not overnight. Talk about lags, right? That's a, that's a much bigger lag. But the bigger structural question isn't, well, look, now that we've done this for 40 years, look at where we are technologically. What does that mean? It's what is happening underneath the hood and what does that mean for the coming cycle, right? And so in my view, um, uh, yes, secular uh, technological advancement will continue. This is part of that never-ending trend, right? Uh, again, we all live, we all create, we all grow, we all create uh, advancement. But uh, you better believe when the wheel was created, people thought the world would never be the same, right? Well, nobody will ever have to walk again. Uh, you know, uh, you know, when the internet was created, we'll never have to uh, talk again. We'll just, uh, you know, or connect to the supermarket, plug our brains into one another. All of these things are essentially true, right? Um, but but they they don't change the simple realities of supply and demand. And, and uh, the ability to, again, supercharge that advancement versus deplete it over the course of decades. Now, that is perfectly fine. And I appreciate your comments there. I was actually expecting a different answer, Jim, because I was thinking about potential civil unrest. And I, I, this is to the extreme, meaning you're suddenly getting unemployment in a group of people that are not usually unemployed or at least not as badly hit during recessions, et cetera, et cetera. And so I was more thinking about the social impact because I think both you and I also share the view that although we might 
think that markets are going to change and that we are in a complete we are in a different regime we're in a different regime geopolitically and so on and so forth but i also think you and i believe that the um quote-unquote cycles for civil unrest and war and all of those things are changing at the same time and they're obviously interlinked but i was just curious uh, on that aspect as well whether this yeah, very, very astute points. I couldn't agree more, right? We've been on a three-legged deflationary stool for 40 years, uh, and all three of them are tied to monetary policy. One of them is just quite simply the first base effects, that cheap money makes it cheaper to do things. Um, but but the knock-on effects of cheap money is that corporations, which were the ones that borrow the overwhelming amount, right, uh, have a profit-seeking mandate, and they go find the the cheapest means of production, which leads to globalization. And they, uh, if you send enough money that way, there's, it's a competitive, you know, evolutionary force that just creates more technological advancement, technological advancement, globalization, cheap capital. Those things are massively deflationary things. They're also, uh, lead to cooperation because corporations are global. Uh, and, and, uh, broadly the unwinding, the knocking out of that most important leg of that stool, which is interest rates, eventually leads to protectionism, et cetera. Populism comes out of that period, right? Uh, the, the, the distribution of wealth, which we've talked so much about, has gotten too far as a function of, of that uh, technological advancement, globalization, Ron, tooth and claw, natural selection, capital market, you know, uh, uh, priority. And, and now we have a generation and this is the key that draws cycles right we wouldn't necessarily have cycles if if the younger generation wasn't by definition labor when you're coming to the world you don't have assets right you you work and then you earn and and so baby boomers are the top of the stratification right broadly and and millennials on down are the bottom of that stratification at that period and so millennials on down have gotten a bad uh, you know, they've been at the, the, the wrong part of the cycle over this period. And that drives populism, right? It's, it's pretty straightforward in that regard. And go talk to any millennial on down. This rings true. You know, they're 40% of the household formation, wealth creation, the baby boomers at this point in the generation. We've talked about this, right? So that ultimately, right, leads to a lot of frustration and anger. You're living in mommy's basement uh, at the age of 35. You are not happy. You know, this is driven, again, crypto and all the other things that we've talked about, right? But at the end of the day, that's where we are in the cycle. Now, add to that what, you, what you've said, right? That all this technological advancement um, is, is essentially making things worse for them uh, and, and likely at this point of the trajectory to continue to, to make, because these are the lagging effects of that 40 years, right? Uh, admit governments efforts to fix that for the populace harder. Um, and, and that's basically what this is, right? That technological advancement will continue and, and as a result, will continue to take money from the rich and move it to the poor. And, and if people are, you know, become more and more unemployed uh, in the middle, um, we'll, have to, we'll have to fix that with other governmental means as well. We vacillate between trusting capital markets implicitly as the best allocator of capital to uh, saying, well, wait a second, uh, the, that raw and tooth and claw isn't fair, and we need somebody to come set rules to make things more fair and trusting government. 
nobody broadly trusts government ever, but uh, sometimes, uh, af particularly after crises, uh, think about 1929, think about kind of, uh, you know, the 69 and some of the things that came after in, in the 70s, um, you know, we broadly begin to trust government to fix that for us. And that's where we are in the cycle. Um, and that, that at the end of the day, uh, you know, everything is tied into this political realities of, of how the voters, or the people who are determining the leadership feel. Um, and I think that's the critical backdrop to be thinking about. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, I, I, before we move on to uh, maybe some some other topics, you obviously expect at some point that markets will, um, you know, keel over and, and start heading south. Um, but I've heard you talk about that one of the reasons why you also expect that or one of the factors in this view is kind of your outlook for earnings. Can you talk about this for a little bit? Yeah. So uh, again, I always hate to refer to that most recent period again and again, but 68 to 82 is is the last time we had inflation. So if you're looking at a data set, right, that's a, that's a pretty important one to look at right now. So GDP growth during that period was above trend, and not just above trend nominal terms with inflation, but in real terms, right? And I think that's pretty mind-blowing when you think about how markets did relatively, right? Like when you really start to put your mind around the fact that like, the economy grew above trend from where we have been the last 20 years. The market went nowhere, not, well, lost 70% in real terms, in real terms, while real growth was higher in the last, call it 20, 30 years. Uh, we've been growing at 15% in the market in, in real terms, or 13, right? Um, while GDP growth has been much weaker. So complete disconnect between the economy and the market. Why? Well, one of the big things that happened was not just multiple contraction, right? It's not just that uh, we had we were having to pay more for you know le less for stocks and more for stocks recently. It's that margins got crushed during that sixty-eight to eighty-two period. Um, why? The same reason why they're at records now, after forty years of monetary policy. That's that three-legged stool. If you uh, are empower sending cheap money. To government, I mean, to, to not government, sorry, to corporations. Those corporations are lowering their cost of capital by globalization, right, and technological advancement. Um, so all three of those things help margins dramatically. If you start to unwind all those things, not surprisingly, if you have to onshore all the means of production in, de in the developed world, if we have to, if the, if the rate of technological advancement slows, if the cost of capital goes through the roof, guess what? Margins collapse, labor, uh, you know, power, as we're seeing, also makes things harder. And all of these trends, which we've been seeing for 40 years, now go the other way. Nobody looks at price to sales anymore. It's always just price to earnings, price to earnings, price to earnings. But price to sales is through the roof. It has been for, for years now. It is off the charts, right? Um, and the reality is a normalization, not just a price to earnings and not just normalization, but you know, a multiple contraction there. Sure, that's part of the story. But the margin compression that's ultimately going to drive a dramatic reduction in price to sales and a normalization of price to sales is going to play a major role in the next decade of uh, stock market you know, uh, going nowhere, as not only I believe, but a lot of other big names, as you mentioned, believe. Now, another curveball for you, uh, which I'm sure you can handle here, Jim, and that is, there's one thing that's different, I guess, 
between period, previous periods and now. And that is the huge amount that we have in passive managed funds versus actively managed funds. And I can't work my head around how I think that that might impact the next I hate to use the word crisis because we're always, it's almost like we're always in a crisis. So I'm not, but let's just call it the next downturn in markets. Now, last year, we did see a downturn in markets. In fact, we saw a downturn in both bonds and stocks at the same time. I don't know that passive versus active made a huge difference, frankly. I don't know. Is that on your radar or is that one of the factors that you do pay a little bit of attention to? Absolutely. So, you talk to most people, especially up until maybe a year ago, about the advancement of passive investment. Most people would consider the advent of uh, passive investment a technological advancement or a, a, a natural move along progress, right? To, to uh, making things easier, lower cost uh, to, to deploy. And they think that, you know, that up until the 1980s, right, like they just, we just weren't there yet in terms of that technological advancement. The reality could not be further from the truth. Indexing has been around for a hundred years plus, right? Um, uh, this, uh, you know, the idea that you can create an index and deploy it is not a technological advancement. It didn't happen before that because it didn't work. It made no sense from 68 to 82 right? Uh, for example, and other periods before to put your money in stocks and close your eyes and wait for them to perform. Because if you did, you have experienced a tremendous amount of volatility with negative real earnings, significant negative real earnings for a long period of time. This was the time of the creation of hedge funds, right? It's also the advent of derivatives, all of these you know, the publicly traded derivatives. Those aren't coincidences. Those are, that was a period where being dynamic and actively managing your portfolio, uh, finding ways, uh, it was also a great time for value investing, right? The, the relative fundamental valuation things that we all talk about came about during that time. People kind of forgotten about all those things for the most part because it didn't work in the last 40 years. But the reality is in a period like what we're likely to go through, passive investing will all of a sudden become not investable, right? Or there will be new, at least, products to, that are active passive products, right? Um, you know, which is, I think, what we're going to see a lot of. Actually, I think, I think you'll, you know, the the indexing of more active products, right, is probably the next big trend. Something that's happened for some time, but really hasn't become central finance. Um, so, yeah, my view is that this idea that beta and broadly 60-40 um, is what works. And everybody thinks they're an investor and everybody has been taught that that is what investing is. That investing is just owning stocks for the long run. You dollar cost average, you close your eyes when it goes down, you buy more, um, is the answer. And you know, over a very, very, very long time frame, that works. But that time frame might be 30 years. Um, you know, and, and, uh, I would venture to say most people don't think in 30 year timeframes when they're investing. So uh, my view is that, yes, we are going to see a significant decline in passive investing, probably at the worst moment, it'll probably take five to 10 years and people will, you know, just like, uh, you know, now in the last decade is really when passive investing has gone through the roof. 
I'm guessing that you'll see um, uh, you know, a decline in the next five years as it just doesn't work. Um, and I think you'll see a significant increase in active management, uh, which has become basically dead as everybody has opined that why would you do it? Look at the performance relative to passive. Why would you pay those expenses? Um, the reason you pay those fees for active investment is the same reason you pay those fees to a doctor or a lawyer or somebody else with a deep expertise. A deep expertise yields its knowledge and leads to some type of edge, some type of uh, thing that will help you that you couldn't get otherwise. And so real investors who have an edge, whether they're hedge funds or otherwise, do create non-correlated returns. And that is where I think the world will have to go in the uh, in the decade to come. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, so let, let me finish off with a question about what you expect into the May OPEX, which is a week from now, and maybe uh, you can talk about what you what you think. And then I want to finish off this this part of the conversation just with a, a one follow up uh, question. But but just to finish off where we are, because I know a lot of people follow you, especially into the OPEX, and uh, so you may be already starting to form your opinions about that. Yeah, so we have pointed to May for some time, right? Um, this is not a new, you know, we said there was a window in at February OPEX, which we pretty much, you know, nailed that, that we would get some type of decline to the day of that Wednesday of expiration into OPEX. That was right before, you know, that, that eventually led to, again, narrative falls price, the banking crisis, right? But uh, the, the answer was very clear that if that didn't have enough thrust and unpin the volatility, which it didn't, that eventually that would lead to another rally and that we would then have to wait till May. And guess what? You know, we've uh, waited and kept, bought that dip and kind of played it into here. Now, we would have liked to have seen a new high and, and a, a bit more of a thrust, a squeeze, if we were to to really get kind of a the, the bigger decline we're kind of looking for, right? And unpinning. Uh, again, we were talking about time or price, right? That move in price uh, often is what... Um, you know, allows for a market to unwind. And why is that? Again, we'll, we'll review uh, because it unpins vol supply. We slide to a lower vol as we go higher, and that ultimately can take kind of vol supply away from dealers and the broad market. Uh, that squeeze takes shorts out of the market because people have to come get squeezed back in, essentially. Uh, they have to, they're underperforming their benchmarks. They got to go back in as well. And then just simply you're getting further off the ground. You're creating more potential energy. And so those three forces are what's kind of necessity to unpin kind of that positioning that we are still seeing. Uh, we haven't seen that enough, right? And so that's, you know, we, we go, we can point on a, uh, on a calendar and say May is a great period for X, Y, and Z reason, but it is also a conditional probability that we're looking at. And we, we'd like to see certain things to, to help increase our odds of it being the right moment. And so I, I, we, we would have liked to, like I said, see a bit more thrust here, and we haven't seen that. That said, there's a lot of structural reasons, as I mentioned at the top of the show, that there are still, this is still a, a, a period not to be uh, long, specifically for the next week and a half, two weeks after starting, starting the Monday, Wednesday, a little bit earlier than usual of, of this uh, OPEX week. It is a period to be cautious and be watchful of price action. 
and and uh, especially given where we are heading into with the banking issues, uh, as well as more importantly the debt ceiling and the way vol structure is pricing in there. Again, why why is this May period? It's not just because May is on a calendar and it's a selling May phenomenon. Again, it's because it is positioning wise. There's a lot of short vol in the June <clears throat> opex because it's a quarterly opex. It's exacerbated right now because of the debt ceiling in that area. Um, so there's less vol supply there. You're in a serial right before that. Think of Feb to March 2020. We've talked about this, but the market rallied into Feb, depleted all the vol that people had in 2020 uh, until all the only shorts were left in the March. And then the day after OPEX, that 30% decline began and ended the day after March OPEX. That's not a coincidence. This is a structural reality of vol positioning, and this makes for a dangerous window for markets, especially after a rally like we've seen, uh, especially um, given kind of where vol and the potential energy is in some of those dynamics. So so a dangerous period, as we pointed to on the, the counter for some time, not with quite the thrust that we'd like. Positioning is shorter than we would like uh, and more prepared for it than we'd like. But that doesn't mean that the realities won't and can't potentially uh, kind of get, get going here. Um, so that's kind of our view. Again, uh, uh, th this would really start, uh, we generally point to expiration as, as the kind of the key point. It might start a little bit earlier. Uh, Monday, the biggest thrust on some of this Vaughn and Charm and support that we see is the Friday into Monday, right where we are today when we're, we're um, doing this. After that, it, it becomes less. Uh, really, uh, Wednesday of OPEX is, is, uh, is an important moment. Now, not to get down to the minutiae in terms of what's going to happen in the next week or two, but let's take the big, let's go back to the big picture for one last time uh, today. And 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 my question is a little bit, maybe it's a little bit unfair actually when I think about it, and that is, what has to change, or what would you look for in order to change your view? What could what could change your view of this, frankly, pretty bearish outlook? And and yeah, so I mean, obviously, I it's easy for me to ask the question. I, I don't know if that's easy to answer, but but I, I'm curious. No, it's a it's a, yeah. it's a question I ask myself all the time. If I didn't, uh, I wouldn't still be around 25 years later, right? Um, managing money. We are not dogmatic, as much as it may sound. Uh, we are very much looking for contrary evidence and testing our theses at all time. The thesis is broadly tied to one very important secular reality, which is are interest rates likely, right? And is liquidity uh, likely to diminish and, and interest rates go higher um, uh, broadly over, over the period to come? Are the knock-on effects of that, right? Which is deglobalization and all the things we've mentioned um, likely to uh, to continue and and what I would need to see, right? If we had a um, all of a sudden China and the U.S. Uh, moved out of the trend towards Cold War back to cooperation, that would change my view. If I began to see um, interest rates, be, you know, if the Fed would be able to lower interest rates to zero, you know, back to ZERP, not us not see an inflationary kind of result. That would change my view. If populism broadly and all the fiscal kind of activity, not just in the U.S. globally, 
right, was to diminish. And I was to see clues that that was turning around. That would change my view. These are the things that are all tied up together in the secular trend that are really underpinning our view. And why, to be clear, we started saying this two, three years ago, and we continue to watch, and it continues to play out step by step. You have little blips here and there, question marks, and then is there, you know, is there going to be a rapprochement between the U.S. and China? Quickly get shot down, right? And that's because of these structural underlying trends. They're because of the people and the populism and the effects of four years. These are big structural things that are very hard to turn. They are not one person's decision. They are not one government's decision. It is the effects of 40 years of monetary policy. Yeah, and, and there are some other policies that's been going on for probably equally as long that, um, and I mentioned Stan Miller earlier in our conversation. I want to get back to, uh, to that point uh, as we wrap up our conversation today. I don't know if you've heard him speak recently. There's an amazing uh, speech he gave recently uh, at a university and you're, since you're nodding, I'm hoping you've heard that. I have, yeah. Um, the Sun Conference, or he, he recently had a, a Yeah, a great okay, so actually well. I did not hear that particular one, but it's probably the same speech, more or less, he gave to, uh, uh, I can't remember, UC California, something like that, where he was like the, on the 1st of May. But in any event, uh, what he has been arguing for a while, and, and he was reminding the audience that he actually came to that university 10 years ago, warning about the period we're almost getting to now 2025 to 2035 as long as that politicians were not uh, willing and able to deal with the real underlying problem meaning we're right now so focused on the debt ceiling discussion but the reality is that's not what we should be focusing on we should be focusing on why we are in the situation with the debt ceiling every single year right how do we solve the huge amount of debt that has built up, uh, obviously he's talking about it from a US perspective, but it's probably many countries we could say that, because in reality, this is something that is going to be so impactful in a negative way for the prosperity of our children, our children's children, etc., etc. It's a huge discussion, and I know a lot of people like to come to podcasts to get some kind of actionable advice about what they can buy and sell, but that's not really what we like to do here. We like to have these bigger picture conversations, because if you want to build long-term wealth, you need to think about these things. So this is probably more, um, you know, just wanting to hear your thoughts about uh, his his views, because I encourage everyone to go and, and, and listen to these conversations. There's no point in us uh, regurgitating what he said. You should listen to him. Uh, he's been around for a long time. He's incredibly successful. And by the way, he also, I think a couple of years ago, started to, to uh, like you and I uh, talked about, start uh, the dangers of inflation building up, et cetera, et cetera. So anyways, long story short, the underlying problems of debt in society, which also Ray Dalio has been out uh, warning about, how does that sit with you? Yeah, so both of those uh, names, right, are, are names you don't take lightly, right? Dalio, uh, Drunken Miller. They are thoughtful, very successful investors. Um, I agree with, I would say, 95% of what Trunka Miller 
says, uh, about 90% of what Dalio says. Um, I, uh, and I, f I feel good about that, right? Being in good company. Uh, they, you know, Trunka Miller has talked a lot recently about the lost decade that we've been talking about now for some time. That said, I do think the debt issue at its core is not the primary issue. I think he really paints it as the primary issue. He completely agrees on the inflation of pressures, the populism, the deglobalization, all of the things. And so does Dalio, right? But I think there's a linear thinking that happens when you start thinking, uh, relating a country like the United States or Europe to a human being and an individual about, oh, well, you've, you've spent like a drunk sailor, right? Like there will be repercussions. And I don't think markets really work that way. I don't think it's, um, I know that it's not fair, right? Like in a fair mathematical model, like that's how it should work. Pretty simple, right? But in a fiat world, which is what we live in, the exorbitant privilege of the primary currency of, of trade, right? Which can change. I get that. We, you could, there's definitely a, a breaking point under which uh, that is no longer the case. But until that point, right, the the primary currency uh, or currencies, can be multiple, right, have the exorbitant privilege of being able to create, you know, and remove debt without massive repercussions. I know that's a heavy thing to say, but it's true. We have created $10 trillion dollars of debt, right, in the last several years. What happened to the dollar over that period? Tell me. What have been the natural, the, the net repercussions over that period? Actually, has the opposite effect generally, right? It tends to drive money back to the main, the center, right? And so the question is, really, and again, I know there'll be lots of people that disagree. That's what makes a market, right? But the question is, where in a time of stress in a time of deglobalization, in a time of uh, populism, in a time of uh, military, economic, uh, resource uh, conflict, do you find safety? And if I look around the world, regardless of the amount of debt the U.S. has or any other country has, I can't find another alternative. There's nothing that even comes close this is an island that is on the other side of the world, protected by two oceans. It's the biggest economy in the world, the biggest military in the world. It is resource heavy. We have all of the food, all of the commodities that we need to produce, right? So most importantly, though, we have a rule of law and a decentralized rule of law. It's not perfect. There's all kinds of ugly warts and problems to this country, debt being one of the major ones, right? But if you are going, you or I are going to put our money somewhere when the, wall, the world is falling apart, I would prefer to have it here than in China. Or I guess we could argue maybe the EU as well, right? But there are problems of the EU as we know as well. And again, this is not just a, a, a pro-American, I live here. Again, I want to be clear, I grew up abroad. I lived, I've lived here. I've lived in lots of other countries. Uh, and this is a, not a pro-American statement. I have 
the U.S. has all kinds of major, major problems that I could go on and on about in a separate podcast. But it does uh, mean that your money is uh, legally safe here as long as you follow the rules that the U.S., you know, which is a decentralized kind of system, right? Um, uh, you know, and, and there's a lot of problems with the litigious and legal systems we have here, but they are decentralized and they do hold up. So my view is really that the, that over the very, very long term, if we're talking 500 years or so, at some point, that stuff may matter. But if, uh, you know, think about what Nixon did uh, in 69 to 72, well, Johnson first and then Nixon followed up on and just untied us to gold, um, you know, from gold. That ultimately was uh, a, a maneuver to say, look, we're, we're the big kind of powerful entity in the room and uh, we're Rome, right? We're going to tax all of our provinces. And uh, until that changes, until Rome falls, and it usually doesn't fall overnight, right? It's usually a slow death. People always like to think about, oh, the implosion of a empire, but it usually is a slow, slow decline. And I think maybe we're heading down a slow decline. I, I can see that the picture for that for sure. But is that happening in the next 50 years? I don't think so. Um, is it happening over the next 200 years? Probably, right? And so I think the, the idea here that, that that debt is going to ultimately be the cause of the, uh, of the major implosion that happens in the U.S. Is, is, I think, misguided. I think there are other issues, right, that broadly are going to uh, cause uh, problems uh, to economies globally. But I think, uh, you know, uh, I don't think the, the U.S. is the specific problem. No, and and I, I, I've been quiet all along because it's always interesting to hear which direction you go. Um, it was a slightly different direction than I expected because I'm I wasn't out of line actually on that thinking about a lot of people. I yeah, know, yeah, I know, right? Yeah, no, 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 not 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 your view, but I wasn't thinking about this as a kind of a dollar story, so to speak. Uh, for me, it was more like. What are we gonna do? What are what are our children gonna do, or their children's, uh, or, or their children, when there is no pensions, when the, when we can't afford pensions, when we can't afford welfare? But Niels, yeah. So I think that it's important to to understand that the, the dollar and the debt are intrinsically tied, right? Um, at the end of the day, the Fed, much like Japan has, right, can take back all of its debt internally. They can just buy the debt, right? They can take it off the external books. And if you do that, the Fed and the Treasury are the same thing. We're just printing money. At the end of the day, you can print. I know it sounds crazy, but the U.S. has done it. We just did $10 trillion of it. We printed $10 trillion and our currency went up. There is, in this environment, as long as the U.S. is the bully in the room or the, the primary kind of means of you know, we have the ability to make that debt disappear. We have chosen not to, to this point, because we don't need to, right? Um, and I want to, I don't want to say we, I hate saying we, because it's not, it's not us. But, 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 uh, you know, the reality is they have the ability. Japan did. And how was Japan able to? Because Japan is being strong. No, because the U.S. sits behind them, right? And, and that's the important so, so I take I take that point, and and again I want to wrap up. Um, but uh, but I will say at the same time that sitting over here in Europe, and you know some of the other central banks, they I mean they print money as well, and 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 even in the U.S., even though you printed all that money, certainly where I'm sitting from, you see 
even a country like Denmark, which a lot of people will say, well, that's a decently run fiscal kind of country. You know, the healthcare system is falling apart. I mean, completely apart. Uh, obviously, the UK, where you hear about 65, listen to this, 65 hours waiting time to get an ambulance. I mean, at some point, I think people are just going to say, we've had enough. I mean, this is completely unacceptable. That's what I mean. But let, let's keep that for another conversation, because I do want to just one final little question. Uh, and maybe the answer is that we've already kind of talked about it. But I couldn't help noticing that gold is sitting pretty much at all-time highs. Any thoughts, any views? Well, well, I think, is it I another think you and I got attempt? that one right uh, <laughs> spot on several months ago. And again, this is what happens during these regimes, right? You get significant volatility to commodities. Um, everybody was scratching their head at first. Precious metals is the one you, well, not, not all commodities. And everybody's scratching their head into that initial decline, right? But it's always a function of, positioning right relative to secular realities and you have to wait for people to give up well guess what the world kind of gave up on gold after it seemed like an obvious trade and here we go right now comes the squeeze and we're at um, near all-time highs and about to break out i would argue that uh, yes we will break out but as i've mentioned it's not just a matter of price everybody wants to know up down it's a function of volatility and the volatility has been too low in precious metals, particularly upside calls. That's how we suggested people play this from day one. And that continues to be the way to play this. It will not be a straight line, much like it's not a straight line with uh, long-term treasuries, much like it's not a straight line with the dollar. But certain trends um, are very much in place here. And the right way to play it in those parts um, is, is playing the leptocratic distribution that we're seeing. There's that word, um, right? And to really play it with parts that the tails of the distribution here and particularly upside uh, for gold. So it took an hour and eight minutes before we heard the word leptocritic <laughs> today, but there we are. We got the it in on the finally. Top of the, the systematic trader we cake. Now, we're, we're done we, today. We can now end our conversation <laughs> on a high note. Jim, as always, it's been fun. It's been a pleasure. It's been insightful. Next week, I am joined uh, by another fun, insightful person, namely Rich. And uh, no doubt, if you have some questions, he will be more than happy to uh, tackle those. You can either email them as usual to info at toptradersonplug.com. If you're enjoying these conversations, uh, do give us a little hand to uh, expand our listener base by leaving a rating and review. It is a great help for us. And of course, we love reading your reviews as well. With that said, from Jim and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.